0: Arizona Common Ground is about exploring issues from a public health perspective. While recording and listening to this podcast, I hope to create an environment where we can challenge ourselves to listen intently, think openly, debate intelligently, and care endlessly. So thank you for listening in. Support for AZ Common Ground comes from the Western Region Public Health Training Center at the University of Arizona. episode we will be getting a behind-the-scenes look of the testimonial phase. Giving us the scoop is Greg, the Vice President of Government Relations for the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association, and Pele from Peacock Legal. In this episode we explore what is a lobbyist, what is vote counting, and describe the significance of the numbers 16, 31, and 1. We inquire on what a slash-and-burn lobbyist is and what the benefits of having a presentation before a committee can do. In addition, we explore what makes an effective lobbyist and what makes an effective advocate. Let's go. I'm Deb Gullett.
1: My name is Will Humble. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Gerald.
0: I'm Sheree Stone. This is Dr. Laura Coco. Thank you for listening to AZ Common Ground.
2: I would recommend spending the summer months and into the fall reaching out to your lawmakers to get to know them. And you have a little bit more time on your schedule to talk and take a deeper dive into issues.
0: Hello there. Welcome to Common Ground. I'm your host, Krista. Thank you for listening in. We're recording from Arizona Senate Rooms Room C on the second floor of the Senate, and I'm here with Greg Ensel. Greg, I'll let you introduce yourself.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Greg Ensel. I'm the Vice President of Government Relations for the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association.
0: Thanks for being here, Greg. It's, um, it's a
1: pleasure to be here. <laughs> thank you.
0: So a little bit of context. So I was tracking and helping Senator Heather Carter from a student perspective, track uh, the telemedicine bill. And Greg has been incredibly helpful throughout this process and has agreed to give us a few minutes to talk a bit more about lobbyists and kind of what happens behind the scenes that we don't exactly see as much of. So Greg, tell me about yourself.
1: Well, we are about to have our second child and I'm hoping that we get through the final week of committees before that happens. Oh my Uh, goodness. Because this year has been insane. It's been so hectic. Yes.
0: How many bills are are going in between the House and the Senate approximately?
1: 1,400 bills or resolutions. We're tracking 100 of those and actively engaged on about 20. And two Mm -hmm. bills were introduced at our request. And then there's several other bills that um, we didn't request, but turns out we like a whole lot and are putting a lot of effort behind getting passed.
0: Awesome. Thanks. For the telemedicine bill, can you walk us through the process for testimonials or when to ask them to come in to share their story or maybe certain circumstances when it's better not to if you don't have to?
1: That is a deep question, <laughs> and the answer is it depends on three numbers. And those numbers are 31, 16, and 1. So whatever it takes to get that thirty-one, sixteen, and 1 to get the bill passed and enacted is what you do. The reason I bring up the numbers is it really focuses on one of the key components of any advocate or activist job, which is vote counting. And largely what type of testimony you seek for a committee is dependent upon your vote count for the committee, and then what you imagine the vote count will be uh, throughout the legislative process. So, in some instances, if a bill appears to have more than enough support on the committee, you might have zero speakers or, or one speaker just to get up and say, Madam Chair, members, my name's yada, yada, yada. Please vote yes. Happy to answer any questions. There's also a circumstance where um, theoretically you could have all the votes on the committee, but you know you have to speak to the broader audience of the whole body or the whole legislature. Let's say you know you have the votes in the Senate for a bill. Um, You know you have them in the committee, you know you have them on the floor. But once it gets to the House, um, you're going to have to work. Having a bunch of testimony in the Senate is a good way to begin the conversation because passing a bill is all just one long conversation. So having testimony at that point in time starts to introduce the ideas. Uh, in a way that you can later refer to them. What's especially challenging about the legislature, and I'm just going stream of consciousness here. So,
0: yeah, please uh, do.
1: <laughs> what's especially challenging about the legislature is there's so many things going on at any one point in time that people have, you know, very limited abilities to focus. So getting everyone to focus on one thing at one time is impossible. So. Doing something like holding a bunch of testimony in a committee in a chamber where you know you have all the votes um, could still provide value if you use that to initiate the conversation. And you also, frankly, use it for social media and public relations to amplify the conversation for Mm -hmm. future use, which is pretty much what we did with telemedicine, where there were four whole, five whole legislators at our special joint meeting. But we were able to get um, social media coverage and get media coverage and parlay that with very little additional effort into a unanimous vote on the Senate floor. And now that the bill passed, going over to the House, hopefully we'll be able to duplicate that. So I could literally imagine taking the video from that joint committee hearing that those four or five legislators attended Take the link and send it to members of the House, saying, "Hey, House committee members, this bill's coming to your committee. Here's this great thing you were invited to, but couldn't make it. We understand you were busy. Watch it at your leisure."
0: Wow. So, to, and, and to speak to that, so this special joint committee was when or was when a conference was scheduled as a demonstration, where actually someone from the Mayo Clinic came in and gave an actual real-time presentation on how telemedicine works. And we, I believe, called someone in New York And actually had a conversation and I I remember a lot of um, all the legislators, everyone from the House and the Senate was invited, if I recall correctly, or was it just the... Yeah, it was everybody.
1: It was all 90 and we got like five. Yes. (laughs) And so
0: there was all the cameras were set up and we also invited media because we wanted to share this. And this is actually something you can see live on the azledge.gov website. You can actually find this. Is that correct, Greg? Absolutely. I think so. And so... But if I hear you correctly, even though they weren't able to attend, we can say we can build on previous hearings and previous testimonies. Is that also the reason why they most likely won't do another presentation?
1: Yeah. And then just the logistics of trying to get the expert who's, you know. Yeah, specialist. (laughs) Coincidentally, you know, one of the foremost telemedicine experts slash telemedicine docs in the country happens to be based at Mayo in North Phoenix. Um, that is wonderful to have him as a resource, as an, and as an advocate. Part of you know, my strategy or our strategy, because it's very much a group effort, is to um, parcel out the resources we have, whether it be a media story, because Cronkite News did about a minute and a half story on it, whether it's the 25 minute long video of the whole session, or it's the article in Modern Health that they wrote. Take those different kind of serving sizes of information and make them available to the legislators. So in addition to say, emailing the committee members saying, hey, at your leisure, here are three different levels of information. You can dive as deeply as you want um, but you don't have to watch the whole 30 minutes, you can watch a minute and a half and consider yourself an expert. Um, so in addition to emailing, we'll also do social media, you know, targeting um, uh, legislators and um, there are different tactics for that, but that's a whole different conversation. Gotcha.
0: So. No, thank you. And so going back to the presentation, how would How did we get that presentation? Like, who do you schedule with? Does a chair approve? Or can you maybe speak to that a bit more? So if someone wants to give a presentation, let's say they're an academic or a professor or a physician, and they want to do that, how would they go about doing that?
1: Absolutely. Um, That is a very good question. The place to start specifically for scheduling will, of course, be with um, a committee chair. One could also reach out to their specific legislator um, there's almost no stronger advocate you'll find than the person who knows you're one of the, their constituents mm-hmm. if the committee chair might not be a natural fit reach out to your respective elected officials, it's pretty easy by looking at the distribution of bills out there to see who the champions on specific issues are. Mm-hmm. So off the top of my head, you know you can say someone like uh, Representative Nancy Barto, tends to run all the behavioral health legislation. So reaching out to her would be a good start. A lot of the foster care and uh, DES, family welfare type items, you might go to Senator Brophy McGee. With a little bit of poking around, you should be able to find a champion. You probably could do something as easy as a Google News search of previous legislation. You know, Arizona legislature food stamps, Arizona legislature, kids care, Arizona legislature, telemedicine. That's gonna bring up articles from previous years that have related legislation. And then you'll be able to see, all right, you know, there was a bill in 2019 that was run by Senator Heather Carter and a bunch of other people. I can reach out to her or a bunch of other people Also, another trick Mm -hmm. is if you find a bill from previous years, go into the legislative website, pull up the bill on the bill search, and then click on the request to speak, and it'll show you who signed in in the past. And I literally did that maybe three weeks ago on a bill from several years ago. Um, The issues started to creep back up. It was not immediately obvious who would be behind it. And so I looked at the RTS and sure enough, this person spoke and called him up and said, hey, can you tell me about where this came from? And boom, got all the information I needed.
0: I'm going to also add to that because I think that's a great tip. But also, if for example, maybe the sponsor um, is not your district or you're getting uh, having a hard time connecting with them, you can also look at co-sponsors, and that's also on the azleg.gov website. And you can see who was, uh, you know, who else supported it, and then you can look at their history and what else they have supported, and then fi- just keep looking around. I mean, I like to think that there's a lot of options, so that's a very good tip. Um, Greg, what would you recommend? Let's say they do get um, they say yeah you know what I could give you 10 minutes before this agenda how should they prepare or do they put them in contact with someone from their team or how does that process work
1: Um, I definitely have the luxury of not having to approach it from square one Um, you know I can I have the luxury doing this professionally and on a regular basis to know who to call and make it happen quickly.
0: Perfect. Um, We could also speak to it from that perspective because uh, I'm sure...
1: But from from your perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, I would first reach out to the legislature, legislator, or legislators you've identified as um, having interest in it. It's best if they're on that committee. So if they aren't the committee chair, being on that committee will help. The committee chair sets the committee agenda. So the committee chair will have to bless and approve the presentation. The committee chair then is gonna refer it to the committee analyst. The committee staffer in the Senate will be nonpartisan research staff. And in the House, it'll be research staff. The staff member will be the person you coordinate with. The most important thing I think when preparing a presentation is understanding your audience and tailoring it both per their level of understanding interest and then relevance Uh, because there's so many issues people can only dedicate enough brain space to items that are the most pressing i'll give you a perfect example please tuesday night i was down here waiting for senator carter to come out of the appropriations committee for us to have a very important strategy conversation there was another state legislator on the committee who was also very important i speak with i texted and emailed them and said hey can you step out in the hallway for a sec there's something i need to talk to you about that's important and i know you care about they came out into the hallway and they said what bill is it and i told them and then they clarified is that bill on this committee's agenda? And I said, no, but it's going to go to the floor in the next day or two. And they said, talk to me in a day or two, because I can only think about what's on the committee agenda right now. Yes. Um, so any presentation that you give needs to be relevant to, to what, how they're thinking about the world and the art, uh, is figuring out how the issue you want to talk about can be framed in a way that they get the connection. Oh, this is relevant. You know, I might not really care about um, the scientific thresholds or the statistical threshold for herd immunity, but vaccinations, now I'm interested.
0: Ah, so um, that's what you mean by the framing.
1: Yeah, you got to frame it in issues that, that they
0: connect uh, with almost in a sense. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, you also need to speak at a very basic level. Um, I wish I could take credit. I heard someone describe an individual wants as saying that person is so smart that they're able to use their knowledge to lift everyone up rather than using their knowledge to push people down or like as a club. You can see a lot of the latter here at the legislature
0: especially among
1: lobbyists where they'll rattle off some arcane statute or regulation and say, oh, but you don't know about, that is knowledge is a weapon uh, and a commodity in the governing process. As it relates specifically to testimony, it's important to make sure how you share it uh, is something that the individuals can relate with and understand. And that's the burden of being an expert um, figuring out a way to pull them up to be able to understand the fundamental questions and be prepared to answer them even if they're not an expert. And I think uh, Dr. DeMarshall did a really great job. I mean, considering he is one of the nation's telemedicine experts, at no point in time did he you know, go into jargon. Um, he kept it simple and you had all five of those individuals um, several of whom were just giving us a you know a, a pity attendance, and they planned to only stay for a minute or two. But DeMarshall spoke to them um, at, on a peer level, and they stayed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I thought we were going to be talking to an audience of one, Heather Carter, because she was sponsoring the bill. So
0: I really like that idea, and I feel like that's something very important in academia that I almost want to comp- continue reiterating because. We, we almost are in our own bubble, let's say, at the University of Arizona, and we're studying a certain topic, let's say vaccinations, right? We're saying, well, according to science, you know, but we also need to keep in mind that there's a lot of different sources of news. So when you do bring this information, you want to say it almost in a gracious manner and to get them engaged. But if you're talking how you mentioned, where you can connect, it's simple, you're not using jargon, it almost invites people to participate and listen. Yeah. And that's fascinating. I absolutely love that. I'm going to go back to a, uh, kind of a different topic. So um, as, a, as a lobbyist, you mentioned that you're working on some bills. Does that mean, um, do you work like specifically with a, a client or a senator or how does that work?
1: I'm easy because I don't have clients. I'm an employee of the Arizona Hospital Association. I could not imagine how difficult it would be to have to do business development in addition to lobbying. I don't mean to uh, suggest that there's unanimity within the hospital industry or my association. There's not, there's lots of shaping and guiding may not be the right word so much as facilitating discovery that happens to be in the direction that I want it to go yeah. or I, I feel but- it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Contract lobbyists, I sympathize for having to get out there and hustle um, to find clients, especially because there are different types of clients, as there are different types of lobbyists. Sometimes um, a client might want to hire a slash and burn lobbyist. Who's, what is
0: the slash and burn lobbyist?
1: Um, a lobbyist who doesn't um, have to worry about the long-term long term relationships. They can come in. They're kind of a one and done Mm -hmm. bill, right? Got it. Um, You can see that, especially with like a lot of specialty legislation, uh, where someone needs one bill passed and then they never have to come to the legislature again. They'll hire a, a slash and burn lobbyist who comes down and pushes really hard. They spend all of the political capital available and then they're done but uh, for that client, that issue. For an organization like the Hospital Association. It's huge. Well, and in, in full full disclosure, there are two separate organizations that represent hospitals. There's um, uh, not perfect consensus amongst the hospitals, though mm-hmm. they agree on 98% of the items. I we sure do like to disagree about 2%. <laughs> um, given that we're a perennial interest or perennially have interest down here, we have to maintain that those relationships because for us, there will always be a day after Signe die. There will always be next session, and we're always going to have to have the political capital or goodwill or credibility to be able to come back the next day and say, hey, I know I asked you, legislator, uh, to go out on a limb for me yesterday, I need you to do it again. So you always have to be mindful about what's next. There's always a tomorrow for an organization like this where some organizations have the luxury of, uh, you know, after today, it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, like those other indivi- or other people that just come and have one bill and they slash yeah. it up and they go. It's almost, uh, you don't have to invest as much in the relationship building that it seems that you do when you it's year after year and it's it's something that's now ingrained you build those relationships you meet those senators you meet the representatives and you learn from them but also you end up working together in that sense and I yeah. think that's really cool something I've got to see is um, how that works and how we share information how the meetings go and I feel like the the lack of time that we have, we're always moving around. Everyone seems, like you mentioned earlier, there's so many moving parts constantly and then constant changes. So that's very interesting. So let's go back to the telemedicine case studies. In the first hearing, can you walk me through it?
1: Part of understanding the kind of legislator mentality is that generally speaking, legislators are averse to conflict. Um, just like parents don't want to choose their favorite child, <laughs> uh, legislators don't want to be forced to choose between interests um, or, or organizations, whatever the right word is. Mm-hmm. Um, so by and large, um, legislators, especially I would argue the better, better legislators, will put the onus on the stakeholders and say, stakeholders, you guys figure this out and bring me a solution you can both live with. Um, because I will not choose my favorite child, to push that metaphor. Um, And so with telemedicine, the process began in November. Of
0: last year, just to clarify, because it was a...
1: Yeah, November yeah. Of 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just but,
0: context for time. It oh, was these, not even session. Some and of they, these things
1: take years. Yeah,
0: years exactly. So um, it was not when it started. Remember, we needed. There's a lot of work that's done way in advance. Oh
1: yeah. So. so I mean, we started. Honestly, the first meeting that we had on telemedicine because ASHA was approached by an advocate for telemedicine who was unable to push the legislation this year. Mm-hmm. We were approached in August, maybe and we weren't that interested initially then we asked some of our member hospitals if they were interested and then started to get the feedback to say all right there might be enough to put the effort behind it and then we started reaching out to some of the other stakeholders the other hospital organization the. doctors many of the other stakeholders and they said all right yeah there's there's enough here here for us to go with this and then we reached out to the uh, insurance community who would be affected or is will be affected by the legislation mm-hmm. um, and it took a while for us to work through things and uh, but we were able to come up with a consensus and the fascinating thing this played out yesterday this morning where what the way I had written or envisioned something, when viewed by someone on the opposite side of the issue, they keyed or were attracted to or had concerns about items that I thought were just simple. Um, Interesting. uh, with regard to the telemedicine, there was the language about the asynchronous store and forward. Mm-hmm. Now, if you talk to hospitals and telemedicine doctors, they say, asynchronous store and forward, of course we're going to use that. We already use it right now for dermatology or sometimes cardiology or remote patient monitoring. You know, this is already state of the industry, this is current practice. But when the insurers saw asynchronous store and forward, they thought, oh my God, what is this? This is a huge loophole. Those individuals who might just wanna drive um, their revenue up will be able to bill us for all kinds of crazy stuff. We don't know what this is. And then it took a while for us to talk through what the intent was, and then they vetted it through their people, and they said, oh, all right, we do kinda, even though we didn't immediately recognize asynchronous storm forward, they're like, all right, we do understand that dermatology is, radiology is, very often done electronically and once once we kind of clarified our intent on that then asynchronous door and forward wasn't a problem
0: it's fantastic so you gave almost had to do an educational component yeah. to clarify you have to learn together
1: i guess yeah
0: because i i could understand that and you're saying oh is this a hipaa violation or and and what what is being meant by the asynchronous door and forward is when it's uh so in telemedicine, you you know, there's cameras and you're recording information. And so that's kind of what they're talking about. So sometimes there's a lot of either terms that sound fancy or, you know, you're saying, what does that even mean? And then you imagine the worst. But through some clarification, through education and through even doing a presentation as, mm-hmm. as was prepared, we were able to answer all those questions and clarify any questions. So that was awesome. Is there anything you would like to share with us or any last touching pieces that you think are important for people that may want to learn more about you and your position or how they could help you?
1: Sure. Um, Generally speaking, uh, and this is kind of more personal philosophy, um, but I'm always excited when I see members of our community, I mean the the broadest possible terms, Mm -hmm. um, here at the legislature, especially when there are subject matter experts who brave the legislature to share information with the intent of, you know, improving the community, the state. I mean, I, I think the the medicine for what ails democracy is, is always or maybe almost always more democracy. Having more people engaged, having more people in the dialogue, frankly, sometimes means more work for me. But at the end of the day, I think is what the founders of you know, the nation and also the state intended, you know, a people's government. So subject matter experts, uh, (laughs) I will speak to the microphone.
0: (laughs) He's pointing to the microphone, Says
1: subject matter experts, please be involved. Please be involved. Absolutely. Uh, And there are many organizations um, out there that have people like me in full-time, part-time or volunteer capacities to be able to facilitate the process, um, I'll share one final anecdote. I had a legislator, criticize isn't the right word, but be a little bit dismissive about a batch of um, form emails that I'd asked our hospital member employees to send. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were kind of dismissive saying, well, oh, you know, uh, a form email, you know, all they had to do was punch a couple buttons. And I said, Uh well, Senator, you're right to be skeptical. But I can tell you in our instance, a lot of those people do care about this, but they find it a bit intimidating to draft an email, um, you know, to a legislator that they've never met before. And though they may care about the issue, they may not feel confident as an expert in the issue. And uh, just because it's a form email doesn't mean they don't care. It might mean, that they're you know too overwhelmed to be able to demonstrate how much they care so the interesting thing we worked through with that legislator mm-hmm. she responded back to all of the individuals with a form email just saying like hey thank you for your you know your interest and then a number of people responded to her form emails with a, a real email you know wow. one, one that they'd originally composed yeah. uh, full circle <laughs> yeah and then it's it started the discussion on a person-to-person basis that that form email to form email was enough to increase the comfort level to have the, the dialogue so
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it, Greg. And I'm gonna add one last thing. If you do call or send an email during my time here, I've noticed that sometimes people forget to mention what exact bill they're speaking about. So if you are reaching out and you are wanting to get involved and send that email, make sure you know which bill it is. That way they know they could track it. And then you say if you're for or against. And I see Greg, is there anything you wanna oh, yeah. add to no. that? No,
1: here's the perfect thing. Yes. Dear Senator Blank. As a voter in your district, I'm writing to ask you to support, oppose, whatever, blank issue in Senate Bill 1234.
0: Voila. There you got it, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for your time, Greg. I truly
1: appreciate it. It was awesome.
0: Welcome to Arizona Common Ground. I am your host, Krista, and I am here with Pele. Pele, thank you so much for your time. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yes. Hi,
2: I'm Pele Fisher. I am the principal of Peacock Legal. I'm an attorney lobbyist and work primarily in the health industry. Cool.
0: Well, I've been lucky enough to work with Pele on uh, the telemedicine bill, and I have learned so much from you. So I'm really excited to share with uh, our listeners kind of a few things that I've learned on the way. Great. um, Can you tell me, because you and I spoke before, but you mentioned you had time working as a policy analyst. Can you maybe tell us what the buildup was in your career to lead to that and then how that got you to where you are now?
2: Yeah, so I started my career uh, working in D.C. So I worked in a senator's office in Washington, D.C. and How old were you, if you don't mind me asking? I was my mid-20s at a law school. Okay, cool. I have always loved policy and been fairly involved in politics and so really wanted to go to D.C. And I love my time in D.C., but really wanted to end up back in Arizona. And when I came back to Arizona, I first... Pursued more of a traditional legal path, working um, in a firm. And then I ended up as a um, senior staff attorney and policy advisor in the Arizona House
0: of Representatives. Did you know people in the legislature, or how did you kind of get your foot in the door there?
2: I uh, was professional professional acquaintances with
0: quite a few God. people that work down here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Once you work in Washington or in, you know, state government, you start getting those networking circles going on, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you. Can you maybe tell us what is a lobbyist? um
2: From my perspective and lobbyist is really an advocate and an educator. We or I really work hard with policymakers to educate them about how a piece of legislation or policy will really have impacts and how it will really implement in the real world. And so we really try to be that um, conduit between the policymakers and the real world constituents that a certain piece of legislation will affect. So really trying to educate policymakers on how a piece of legislation will positively or negatively affect their client and then really advocate for a best case scenario for our client.
0: Gotcha, so let's use a real world example. Let's talk about the telemedicine bill, so SB 1089. As a lobbyist, can you explain the importance of early engagement, so before session? I find
2: that engagement with stakeholders, government officials, policy makers, all that is critically important um, and critically important to do it early because a lot of times, not in every case, but in a lot of times, you can get around the table, talk about a problem, find a solution, and bring it to the legislature. Um instead of getting in a huge fight down here, sometimes it always sometimes it's an issue that people are always gonna be black or white on. Yeah. But a lot of times a lot of the bills really can be worked through the minutiae on up front, get consensus and buy-in and deal with a lot of the issues before it's brought to the legislature. So in the telemedicine bill, well, for one, there's been ongoing discussions about telemedicine since we first passed our telemedicine statutes because Arizona, like unlike any other state, has had this delineated list of services that would be covered. So year after year, we come back to talk about something else that needs to be added to that list, and so it's been this ongoing conversation. Um, but leading up to this session and the telemedicine bill, we really engaged, you know, all the healthcare provider stakeholders, the insurers, the regulators, early to talk about really getting our telemedicine statutes in line with the rest of the country, and really talk about parity coverage if something's covered in person it needs to be covered via telemedicine through um, an individual's commercial insurance that's ultimately what the bill ended up doing. There were other things on the table at the beginning that, you know, we had to kind of take off the table
0: in order narrow to- Narrow the move, focus. Yeah, narrow <laughs> the focus
2: in order to get, get consensus to have a bill move forward this year. So, for example, you know, we limited it to the more of the commercial health plans, and we also uh, took payment parity off- the table for now. What do you mean by took off payment parity off the table? The beginning of uh, the discussion around telemedicine was really that Um, We should have coverage parity and payment parity so that providers are reimbursed at the same level as an in-person visit. But in negotiations and discussions with the insurer, um, we limited the focus of this bill to coverage parity.
0: Got it. So it'll cover it, but
2: they don't have to pay for it? They have to pay for it, but not at the same amount that they would cover an in-person visit. So they can set their own rates for the...
0: Telemedicine, got it. Services. And what was it like trying to get? How do you get all those people in a room?
2: Well, luckily, I've worked in the healthcare space for quite a while, so you know <laughs> the people that you need to get in the room. Got and I think that they appreciate being engaged early and having these conversations and hammering out the specific language of a bill, so that they're not just blindsided in session when people
0: file a bill, mm-hmm. rather than like having that upfront work and conversations happen. Can I just repeat something you mentioned that I think was really important? The As you mentioned, the language before, like working on that together. And I feel that, that that's very important for our listeners to understand because let's say you have an idea and you're working on the language and you're saying this is going to be a great bill, you know, it's going to help these people. You, know, you have it figured out to the extent that you think is necessary, but the importance of bringing other stakeholders and other people that are going to be affected to the table is also opening it to say what else might happen that we might not have thought of. And then by doing this with enough time, it gives you that time frame before session starts to kind of hatch out those things, as you mentioned. So Excellent. I'm really glad you mentioned that.
2: Yeah, exactly, and so many of the issues are in the details of the specific words used. And one asynchronous word, <laughs>
0: storm forward. Yes, you know,
2: <laughs> certain words can destroy things when that might not be. You're just trying to capture a concept, mm-hmm. but someone that is implementing it or going to be affected by that law, those specific words can really matter. And so making sure that everyone gets as comfortable as they can with the specific bill language goes a long way beyond getting everyone on board with just the concept yeah
0: so I'm gonna kind of switch gears really quick because I was very interested when I first started my internship here is seeing who everyone in the room is and who everyone outside of the room is so for example if I'm in the house of representatives and there's that long hallway and you go outside of hearing room like three let's say who are all the people outside on their phone are all of those lobbyists all the people on their phones calling talking you have a mix of things uh you have the
2: lobbyists and then you have the representatives from all the different departments agencies counties cities and then you have there's also a lot of interns that are running around because um there's not only the interns that work directly in the House and the Senate and the pages, but then all the agencies and a lot of lobbyists and um, a lot of Corporations and government affairs people have interns too. So, And then you have just everyday constituents that care about certain bills that come down uh, to show their support or opposition to a bill. Um, but the core group of people that you see in there day in and day out are kind of the lobbyists, the government affairs folks, the interns, and people that are down
0: Day in and day out, the same faces. Understood. And and once you come up here, if you do do an internship, you'll you'll start recognizing the same people. And that was a great segue, actually. So I'm still learning. And I, who is the Goldwater Institute? Because that is who sponsored the anti-vaccination bills. And I was just curious. Can you tell me about them? Yeah, but I don't. I don't think that they were in on the vax
2: were they on the on the vax yeah so else?
0: they so from what i hear is they they sponsored it or they helped nancy bartow oh. um represent Barto. and um but i was just curious because i had never i mean i'm like i said yeah. i'm still a baby i'm figuring yeah. out what's going on in the political arena but i was just fascinated that they had such incredible support from someone that's a chair and then that They were able to like give a presentation, and I remember sitting through that, and my public health inside yeah. was like cringing. Sure. Yeah, <laughs>
2: uh, the Goldwater Institute is a um, because they're also thing. lobbyists, no? Uh, yeah, Agency. yeah, they're um, no, they're they're a private organization, they're like a think tank, and they have lawyers and staff to progress their policy issues that they want to, so like the ACLU has their agenda and their policies that they push forward, whether they're legislatively or legally. Goldwater has their focus of issues that they push forward and promote, whether legislatively or or legally. You know, there's think tanks on education policy and think tanks on like anything you can think of. So they're really, you know, kind of policy groups that have a specific focus in what they pursue as
0: their policies forward. Yeah, because I looked them up and I saw that they're nationwide. So it's not just in Arizona.
2: Right, but they're headquartered here. So they they have a...
0: Okay, I think that's great that we do that. Yeah, especially if there's an educational component, you know, when we do want to introduce new that is fat. that's fascinating. Yeah, that's really good. Let's flip that really quick because I really see how right what I would like to s- bridge is academia and policy. Right. So we tell students to find their niche and, you know, this is what you're going to study. You know, this is what you're an expert or a specialist on. How do we use that? You know, if you don't get your paper published, but how do you help or how do you share that information? So it might be more difficult, but a presentation might be something they would be able to offer even if they'd be interested.
2: Yeah, so me, I don't come from the academia world at all, but I um, am really a lifelong learner and thrive for knowledge and information. So, when I'm working on a certain issue, you know, I really deep dive into the issue and learn as much as possible. So, I actually think about this topic a lot about uh, bridging the academic world and the policy world. And I think about how much research and work goes into deep diving into policy and the academic world. And then, sometimes, from my perspective, those publications and stuff sit on a shelf and aren't really utilized when making policy. And so I think that we really need to think more about how we can bridge that gap. I think it's going to involve a number of things. One, thinking about how those articles are written so they're a little bit more digestible for policymakers and or summaries, abstracts, highlights of them that really can be better processed into policymaking and then really figuring out how to break down the silos or the four walls of the academic world once they do all this in-depth research and connecting it with policymakers. Sometimes that's as simple as establishing a relationship with your representative or your senator. Sometimes it's getting more involved in any associations that might be involved in the issue that you're studying academically. Sometimes it's finding that connection um, to take what you've learned in your research and have it affect policy. Um, There are a number of groups um, in Arizona that I can think of specifically off the top of my head that, you know, have, are working on policy issues and they'll undergo research and study. And, you know, we see that a lot on economic impacts of certain policies and what other states are doing in policy. So I think it's really important. Um, and I think that we have a lot of work to do in bridging that gap and making sure also that information policy are using and relying on is factual and accurate and not just promoting whatever side of
0: something that at the moment they're interested in. Yeah. Well, thank you for seeing that. And hopefully, this podcast will help with that actually. Yeah. So, let's say there is someone that was given the time to, you know, debrief or give that educational component, and they misspeak because the information they're using is are not facts. And this woman, God bless her heart, you know, she went in, she was giving information, and I, you could tell she's just there. Talking about the vaccine. Yeah, the vaccine. Hearing. Yeah, the hearing. And there's a few things I was saying, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But you can't just stand up and say that. So what can we do as public health professionals? Because in our sense, it's our duty to share unbiased health evidence. And so how can we do that on when we are listening to vaccination exemptions and that's one side and we're trying to understand where the parents are coming from and on the other side we're like well what about public health and what all the facts have told us how do we how do we appropriately bring that to the table
2: um as public health professionals or interested students well i think there's a couple ways um first i'll talk specifically about the bill and then maybe I'll talk a little bit generally. Okay. So when it comes to some of a specific legislation that wouldn't be uh, moving forward public health Priorities. There's our RTS system at the legislature, which is the request to speak, and it just requires you to come to the Capitol one time to log in, and then you have an account set up. And that allows you, when bills are being heard in committee as a private citizen or as a lobbyist or whatever, to sign To sign into the system and register if you are um, for or opposed to a bill, and you can add some comments about how you feel that way. I think that that is becoming a more critical and important part of the process. And over my tenure at the Capitol, I've seen that become more and more important. Um, It used to just be one lobbyist standing up, giving their You know, opinion more of that grassroots campaigns of private citizens really engaging in the process um, is is has a lot of weight down here. So the RTS system um, establishing relationships again with your representatives and or your senators um, in order to give them your perspective on it. Um, A lot of the members are really good at reading their constituent emails and registering and tracking if people are for or against things. One of my tips on that is do it before you're really trying to impose the outcome of a bill. So the interim when we're out of session is a great time to call up your member and be like, you know i'm just an active citizen i'm a public health guru i would love to just meet you and kind of talk to you about some of the things that i do and it's amazing how just one little meeting like that like a coffee with your member could can establish a long-term relationship they remember oh my goodness that student or that professional met me and we were talking about this now it builds up about this i need to connect back with them or if you connect back with them to then say i really want you to vote for or against this they have a name with the face they have an established you know, relationship. Um, So I think that's critically important as individuals. Um, I'm trying to think emailing your members, even if you don't have a relationship with them, that's really important. And then I think a critical piece that's really important that um, I think needs to really stay on the forefront of young professionals' minds is joining associations and groups that promote causes they believe in. For some reason, I'm not sure how that's going to play out with younger professionals and students coming out into the workforce. Example. Like the Public Health Association. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that everyone that is, you know, in the public health colleges and pursuing a degree in public health and um, in careers in public health, being a part of the Public Health Association is a great way to get information about what's going on, to voice your opinion, because they advocate for public health. It's like adding your voice (laughs) on to make it louder. Yeah. You know, doctors have a medical association. Nurses have a nursing association. If you're really interested in environmental issues, there's groups that do that because collectively you can put your voices together. They have policy experts and attorneys to help move things forward or help you find a path to solving a solution out there. So I think that's something really important that that people should consider.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I'm going to refer everyone that's listening if you do want to hear more about this. There is testimonials from a public health perspective, and we actually get to speak with director of ACPHA, Will Humble. So definitely check out that episode if you are interested in hearing more about associations because that is so important. I'm a board so member, important. too. Oh, there you yeah. go. <laughs> There's another plug. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to kind of ask a little bit more about, for, again, the presentation. So what could I have done As I'm sitting in this room cringing and listening to, you know, things being said, but they're not facts, is is there any way to fix that?
2: Well, so when you sign into the RTS system, you can sign in um, wanting to speak if you can physically be present at the committee. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it becomes, for an example, at the vaccines hearing, um, it becomes difficult when there are a ton of people signed in because the chairman only ultimately has to start limiting time because they've
0: gotta mm-hmm. go home at
2: some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's just part of the process that the chairman has the discretion to kinda handle the committees that they want to. Um, so there is giving direct testimony in the committee hearing, you know, to clear something up or put forward your position on something. There's also just kind of the engagement things that we talked about before following up with emails like I heard this and that is factually incorrect and really getting those factual responses and advocacy message beyond the committee hearing and working through associations again. So it's all related to what we just talked about.
0: Would another strategy be if it has to go through a different committee to try to Let's say you you spoke with a chairwoman or chairperson of a certain committee, and you know like, they don't really want to offer that time, or you know they say no to the presentation, which is totally makes sense, you know, because they have the discretion to say yes or no. So then, should we maybe see what other committees that the bill will be heard in, and maybe try? to give a presentation later and just to clear things up or are you saying just testimony is kind of the best way?
2: Um, if a committee is double assigned or if a bill is double assigned to the other committee, that that's a good idea. Um, one major thing I forgot to mention that I think is more and more important is both traditional media and social media. You know, I on the vaccine stuff, uh, specifically, you have seen a lot of media attention brought forward to where our current vaccination rates in Arizona are, how they're compared to the rest of the country, some of you know the outbreaks and potential outbreaks, and how that affects herd immunity and all that. Um, and social media, you know, I think we talked briefly earlier on about kind of that grassroots efforts going on, and I think policymakers are watching and responding more and more to that social media input and are they getting bombarded with people that are in support of something
0: or opposed to something? Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. So we do need to kind of strategize. See if you can't come to Phoenix, you know, use the RTS system to give testimonial. If you can't, still use the RTS system, sign in for or against, establish a relationship, use social media to bring awareness around the issue. So those are some things that we can do. So just for my last couple questions, um, <laughs> I have a question, but I'm not going to ask you because I'm too embarrassed. So I'll skip to the next one. Um, you can ask me. I was going to say who pays you. Um Oh <laughs> no,
2: no. No, it's all public records. Really? So, okay. Um as a, because I'm an independent contractor lobbyist, so I'm hired by individual groups. Okay. And then if I am, if I'm lobbying at all on their behalf, um, you have to register with the secretary of state's office. Okay. So anyone can go on that website. And if you're interested in who someone's lobbying for or who the lobbyists are for a certain group, you can search their website.
0: Really? Yeah. So even as a, as a student, I could go in there and be like, Hey, you know, this, this lobbyist works on these types of issues. Maybe I could send him some information. Information. Yeah. Huh.
2: Where in, where can I find this? Um, if you go to the Secretary of State's office mm-hmm. under the lobbyist records, you can search the lobbyist records. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: That is so cool. Yeah. I can't believe I didn't know yeah. <laughs> and, I mean,
2: I, I don't only do lobbying. I do other legal work.
0: So on to the last question. So what is the relationship between the legislator and the lobbyist?
2: Um, the relationship between lobbyists and uh, legislators. I think it can vary dramatically, and I think it depends um, on both the legislator's personality and on the lobbyist's personality and how they engage in certain work. Um, And so some lobbyists obviously create closer relationships with certain legislators, certain lobbyists focus on members of a certain party, some lobbyists focus on everybody, some people focus on certain issue areas, Mm -hmm. some people have worked with certain legislators for a long period of time so they have an established relationship, you know. So that's how that works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like you read in the news, some lobbyists take legislators out for steak dinners every night. Some of them don't. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm.
0: it is just very individual. It It, just varies. It depends on the situation, on the person, on the lobbyist, on the issue. Exactly. Gotcha. And I think one of the things,
2: you know, lobbyists kind of get, you know, a bad name in the public sphere. But I think you also have to remember, you know, we have 90 legislative members down here. 60 and 30. And 60 in the House, 30 in the Senate. You know, and I'm trying to think. On average, there's probably, I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head, 2,500 bills each session so each of those night what each of those 90 members cannot become an expert on 2500 bills and also those 25 100 bills can be dealing with healthcare to agriculture to commerce to the color blue to you know i mean like you name it they could be yeah. dealing with anything and then you think of those legislators their background can be that they have exposure to the healthcare community that they know nothing about the healthcare system except for what they've personally experienced. Um, They could come from a strong real estate background or a strong um, education background. You know, so the knowledge they bring to being in an office and then the vast majority of bills, and it's almost like any profession, you have to figure out who your experts are and who you can rely on and who you can trust. But really, lobbyists really are a critical piece in helping educate, understand what is going on with those mass amounts of bills that are down here. And legislators also have to take that information and sort through it to figure yeah. out, like, they're obviously advocating for something. I'm trying to get knowledge on it. Our staff at our capital is awesome, but it's very limited. And the experience on the staff level can vary a lot. Mm-hmm. Staffing can change based on leadership and this and that. And, you know, unlike a lot of other states, we don't have a policy advisor for every member. But in my opinion, a lot of really good lobbyists will go to a member explain the bill tell them what's good tell them what's bad and like why they're taking the position they are Hmm. so very factual but then advocating for their client's position and explaining why that's their client's position what the opposition or what the you know the other side will say and why your position's best so really being you know, an educator and helping sort through the massive amount of information that members get bombarded with.
0: And that's why you say I do deep dives because literally that is what you have to do for almost every issue that a that a client comes to you with. Yeah. You have to know the in and out, how's what, you know, repercussions are, how it could be implemented, how to be prepared, who to bring to the table. Holy cow. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you want to tell the listeners before you jet out? I really
2: hope that all this information you're learning sparks an interest in you of really to find your niche of how you can be involved. It's just so important that we have better involvement in our process. Like if you don't, please don't tell me, but if you don't vote, go register to vote, vote, vote in our primaries, Do some research into our candidates and make sure you're voting for someone that you think is going to be a good representative for you. And then figure out your niche to get involved. You know, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing, um, but, you know, paying. Paying a small amount of dues to be involved in an association that, that is something that you're really passionate about so you get information about what's going on in that issue area and how you're being affected, and if there's a way you can help. Um, if you have a candidate that you are really passionate about, helping them collect signatures or helping them... Register to vote, or you know, anything you can do. I think a lot of people in today's world think that you have to be all in or nothing, and everyone's time is so limited, but there are small things you can do that make a huge difference. And on the voting thing, I don't think I said this make sure you vote in our primaries. Our primaries really determine a lot of our elections, and so a lot of people are checked out in August when it's all hot, but. Um, Get on the early Early voting list. Get it in your house. You don't even have to get in your hot car. You can vote. (laughs) Just slip it in the mail. But it's so important. Thank you so much, Paley. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you. (laughs) You. Bye-bye, everyone. Just in time for a quick recap. So we learned that one of the key components of an advocate's job is vote counting. Vote counting is where the special numbers 16, 31, and 1 come from. This meaning you need the majority of votes in each chamber. There are 30 senators and 60 representatives. Therefore, you need 16 votes in the Senate and 31 votes in the House of Representatives. And then the one comes from the one and only state governor. From there, the type of testimony depends on the vote count. We learned that testimonials can be used to initiate conversation. In addition, we can use presentations to not only initiate conversation, but to answer any questions or concerns, and this can also help with public relations, especially when you bring in media coverage. Some great tips mentioned were to parcel out the resources that you have. So if you have a media story, social media, if you want to target certain legislators, make sure to take serving sizes of information and share them adequately. Another tip, Was to plan ahead and see who will most likely support or oppose your issue. This can be done by looking up a bill from the past and looking to see who has signed up in the request to speak system for or against the bill. We also learned that in order to give an educational presentation, the committee chairperson must approve it. From that moment on, you will work with support staff to set up the logistics. When you're giving your educational presentation, understand your audience and tailor it per their level of understanding and relevance. We also learned that there's different types of lobbyists as there are different types of clients. And we learned that a slash and burn lobbyist doesn't really care about burning bridges because they are a slash and burn lobbyist. They come and go like the wind. One thing that we need to remember in academia is that when we work and we create articles that are written so well, we also need to create them in a manner that is digestible for policymakers and or make summaries, abstracts, or highlights that can be better processed for policymaking. Most importantly, we learn to lift each other up and speak to the audience on a peer level, because that is the best way to find common ground. Next on Arizona Common Ground.
1: The reason that you need to do it is because you don't want to do it, because you you have to get out of your comfort zone on stuff.
2: Just thinking that through about how you frame your, your legislation or your advocacy goal is really important.